0: To start off, let's just do a round of introductions, so everybody can say their name and their pronouns if they want to. And how about, uh, what is something that gives you revolutionary optimism today? My name's Ani, I use they, them pronouns, and I went to, like, a Building Queer Worker Power event last week, and it was awesome. There were, like, 40 people there, and it made me very excited for the next of those events that they're gonna
1: Um, I'm Colette. I uh, use she her pronouns, and as of yesterday afternoon, I'm a candidate member for PSL, which is super, super, super exciting., Yo, um,
0: awesome It's been yeah. a, been a long awesome. time
1: coming, so that's a huge so like that's a really big like revolutionary optimism source for me right now. I'm really happy about that.
2: Hey me too now.
3: I'm Andrew. I use he him pronouns. And I'm really excited to see more Marxist-Leninist podcast bloom here. I mean, we just got uh, Proles the Minion had their first episode. I just listened to that yesterday. And just hearing more Marxist-Leninist dis- discussion is just gives me a lot of hope today.
2: Mm-hmm. So I'm Jess. I use uh, they, them pronouns as well. And I'd uh, like to echo what Andrew said. And it gives me a lot of optimism to see so many of our comrades taking the step to, like, get out there and add their voices to the conversation. And I just love that they are, like, brave and motivated enough to do that. And, and I just can't say enough good things about them. So solidarity with our, our sibling podcast, uh, Proles of the Minion.
0: Proles Network
1: expanding
2: yeah trolls trolls
1: (laughs) media empire (laughs) (laughs) union of soviet socialist
0: podcasts
2: (laughs) the ussp
0: (laughs) and i'm also really glad that we're we can sort of make the barrier to becoming a podcaster lower and by doing that like de-white broify the podcasting world god yeah
2: right i agree (laughs) absolutely I actually love that we accidentally made a podcast because I feel like it makes it easier for other people to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, honestly.
0: <laughs> also, after listening like The bar like, is
2: so low, guys. <laughs> yeah.
0: After editing chapter two for like hours, I'm now very excited for you, Jess, and Talia's upcoming project. If I'm sorry if that's a secret. I can cut it out.
2: No, that's okay. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so Talia and I are also going to be recording our first episode soon of a podcast we're going to be calling uh, The Tolerant Left. So ours is not going to be a history podcast. Um, it's going to be a discourse podcast, and uh, it is also going to be a part of our sibling network. Oh, yeah, my God. That's that is what so... we're doing tonight. Oh, nice. Nice. I, I believe, I hope we're doing it tonight.
3: <laughs> just so, nonstop recording. I mean, we
2: are recording two sessions today. So it's just, Oof. you know. Yeah.
3: Go and add it today. Then yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: I'm going to have to stop talking at some point. like. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, that it gives me a lot of hope that, like, there are just so many more voices out, and, like, we kind of need a lot of, like, ML people out there talking.
3: Yeah. The more the merrier. And, uh, yeah
2: exactly our family is growing so fast
3: (laughs) just opening up discussion is like so important right now
2: that and also like i think we should continue to pressure our our comrades to do the uh art history podcast
1: Uh, i'm recording with the Proles in mid-august and that's going to be super cool um but other than that like my my major is like ancient history which is like my biggest like knowledge area and that's kind of not really applicable to a podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what are you going on to for?
1: I am talking about um, the history and theory of democratic centralism and socialist democracy. Talking about, like, I'm kind of beginning to be, like, giving an overview of the history of democracy in general and then how that manifested in practice in the USSR and how it's manifesting in Venezuela that sounds really cool sounds awesome
2: yeah i'm so excited for that
1: i chose venezuela specifically because in my in real life experience a lot of people who like get away with calling themselves marxists are like really easy to blow off venezuela as like oh it's still like it's not a proletarian democracy it's not even close it's just social democracy it's just like it's not really revolutionary, and I kind of want to, like, address that indirectly and be like, no, they're actually making really, like, strident steps towards – I mean, like, they're – like, the PSUV's last Congress – like, the the topic of the last PSUV Congress was literally all power to the Soviets.
3: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so we really are doing a re-record of something we have that. done – Um mm-hmm. A number of weeks ago at this point, that got unfortunately lost. So we can just quickly run through and make something for people to listen to.
2: I also really loved that. Um, like this was when I really started to love this reading, to be honest, was like these two chapters. So I'm like kind of not too upset about having to redo it.
3: Yeah, no, like these these are good ones. I mean, this is where we we learn how money becomes capital and th- things start really becoming applicable to all the other theory we've been been reading in our lives hopefully so it's a big big chapter as far as
0: moving yeah. forward with the formulas absolutely basically if you've made it this far you get to finally start enjoying reading capital <laughs>
2: <laughs> right exactly i've loved everything i've read since then
3: <laughs> we have turned the corner it, it's, it's absolutely a, a pivotal area
0: all right andrew you want to give us uh, your abcs of chapters four or do okay. you want to do four and five or just chapter four
3: um,
2: four I mean, five,
3: I think. yeah, we're, we, we can do four and five. I think they're pretty well integrated. So um, we're coming out of the money form at this point, which uh, at the end of the chapter on money, we understood the money form of commodity production is commodity for money for commodity. So now we're coming into the general formula of capital, which is in chapter four. And the first thing we hear in chapter four is that the modern history of capital dates from the 16th century embrace of world economics and commerce. So at this point, the money form changes into the capital form. And that's when you exchange money for commodity for more money. And money, this is where we learn that money is, it becomes capital once the intent for using it is expanding upon your exchange value. And that's like the first big pivotal point is where we learn all right, what constitutes capital and what is money? Because we know that capital is both money and commodities, but money is not necessarily capital. So that's like the first third of chapter four right there. So, But the big, the big highlight there is that we've learned how uh, the money form transfers into the general formula of capital. So once we've gotten into the general formula of capital, that's when we see surplus value. So in surplus value, he starts representing it by a new equation. So that's where we see the intent come to fruition. This is where money becomes commodity, becomes money with surplus value. So you had $90, you bought X amount of Bibles, and then you exchanged it again, and you came out with $100. And that $10 over your initial amount of money is your surplus value, which he represents in this new equation, which is money for commodity for money prime
0: so i don't know if anyone has an exposure to like bourgeois economics but um does anyone want to comment on what the role of surplus value is to the field of economics and how uh, i mean to me it seems like the question of where surplus value from is kind of like the basis of where different economic schools come from
2: yeah i think you're right about that but i am not the person to comment on that
0: (laughs) no
3: i i mean i just started like coming into that understanding with some of our most recent readings so i don't even i couldn't comment either on like how the modern bourgeois economist like i think like the chapter on last hour theory was the closest i've come to understanding that so i wouldn't be prepared to comment okay
0: then as apparently the foremost bourgeois economist of the podcast having taken high school the question i keep on wanting to come back to while reading marx is first of all looking at how marxist theory subverts but also works within bourgeois political economies because in some points marx is really like going off in a whole new direction like they don't really consider a surplus value to come about from the production process itself so marx is the one that's actually saying let's not just look at markets let's look at every other part of the economy we can't just look at exchange so On the one hand, we see how Marx is coming out of, like, an existing context of political economic theory. On the other hand, we have, like, how us reading Marx today contrasts with, like, the libertarian bourgeois economists that we sit in contrast to, um, which form, like, the most of bourgeois economic departments in academia in America.
1: Yeah. It's funny because, um, would you say that libertarians form most of economic academia?
0: Um, I wouldn't say they form economic, economic academia, but rather, like, when you take virtual economics to its highest extent, the people arguing for that on the internet are, like, the libertarians. Oh, okay, the yeah, okay. yeah.
3: Yeah. The, the, the openest market, the most, you know, freedom to buy and sell yeah. at whatever rate you want. Yeah. More anarchy of production.
0: Right, and you also have to kind of, like, contrast how virtual economics pretends it functions from, like, how it actually maintains its economy because the economics departments and schools serve like an ideological component to have the economic or like the theoretical justification for bourgeois capitalism but on the other hand you have bodies like the wto or the fed which are actually dealing with real life economic and like interest rates and deciding these financial policies And again, that's not something that anyone in America is, like, voting on doing. All of that stuff happens in the background. So what is the general
3: formula? The general formula of capital is money for commodity for money prime. And in that equation, uh, money prime is M plus DM, where DM is your surplus value and money and M is always just your money value.
2: So um, I think it was from chapter four. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, footnotes, because I've come to have favorite footnotes of his, is where he talks about the difference between economic to crematistic and um, how he's describing how um, a true wealth consists of such values and use for the quantity of possessions of this kind capable of making life pleasant is not unlimited. There is, however, a second mode of acquiring things to which we may, may be preference in, let's see, sorry, Anyway, he calls it crematistic, and in this case, there appeared to be no limits to riches and possessions. Okay, he goes on to show that the original form of trade was barter, but with the extension of the latter, there arose the necessity for money. On the discovery of money, barter of of necessity developed into into trading and commodities, and this again, in opposition to its original tendency, grew into crematistic, into the art of making money. And he says that it's distinguishable from economic in the way that um, to strive for riches for the point of of growth alone, like the point of 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 participating in the economy is to have unlimited growth. Like there's no limit to the growth. And that itself is like he's making making a a a parallel to the way that like economy should function versus the way that it's like decaying, essentially.
1: By the way, if anyone is having trouble with the Greek in the footnotes, um, feel free to call on me because I know Greek because of I had to read Aristotle.
2: <laughs> oh, that's my God. Perfect. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect, too, because like I I've mostly been listening to the audio book as as well as um, reading it. So they translate it while we're reading it. So my notes actually have it written the way that it was said. So, Uh but thank you for translating when I don't have my notes in front of me. (laughs) I just had like a tab here, like a sticky note where I was like, oh, good note. (laughs) Good quote. But um yeah, basically, there are no bounds to crematistic. The, the goal is um, unlimited wealth, absolute wealth.
3: Yeah, he says at one point, like, it's, it's made by its, its very design to want to continually push boundaries and expand its, like, since its purpose is to expand its value, it's always ever seeking these new boundaries and trying to push beyond what the limits of capital
1: supposedly previously we were. Yeah, no, I really, really like that footnote, too.
2: I like, like, the whole thing, but I didn't want to read the whole thing. <laughs> so like so I'm like, wait, which part should I read? So I don't like take 15 minutes reading a footnote. Because it's like literally longer than the text on this page.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's huge.
2: But it's my favorite oh. footnote.
3: Yeah, with the point of Aristotle, that's where we start to see like the differentiation of uh of merchant's capital and usurers' capital. And and then in the modern age that becomes like finance industrial capital and so like like we're starting to see the different different forms that cap- capital can take, even just within the general form of
1: um, from an economic perspective, and like knowing what I know of of those societies, this is kind of where the where, this is kind of where like um what Marx calls ancient modes of production start to really develop. like obviously, like like there's kind of a tendency for people now to try and like equate the economic, the political economy of Rome and Greece with modern day political economy, which isn't really correct because there are obviously two different forms of modes of production. We're in a capitalist mode of production. They're in an ancient mode of production. But um, this is kind of where you start seeing like the roots of what we like, these things that have become a part of the capitalist modes of production start to kind of... Germany where you have the emergence of this kind of like merchant class um who's not quite petty bourgeois but like they're forming like um new political power new economic power that didn't previously exist um so that's my tangent on that
3: yeah and that's actually where the money form becomes so important because yeah. that's like the merchant's since they have to trade in these universal exchanges, they become the first to realize this uh, this function as the lubricant of economy that money takes.
0: So, uh, I don't know, my brain is like very scrambled across different chapters. Is this a chapter where Marx breaks down the differences between CMC and MCM?
3: Yeah, that's the first thing that yes. happens in the general formula of capital Is is we realize that the money form is CMC. And the capital form is mcm and the general formula of capital is mcm prime prime being surplus value
0: cool so i i guess some uh something i wanted to call out on that is uh, so cmc and mcm are two sides of the same coin as we discussed in earlier chapters on exchange like you know one person's commodity is traded for another person's money but the relationship goes the opposite way so on the one hand it's the same operation if three exchanges or if two exchanges occur, one side of it is the MCM and the other side of it is the CMC. But the important difference is that in CMC, you begin with a certain amount of exchange value and you end with the same amount of exchange value, but you get a different use value because you start with a commodity, a commodity whose use you don't really want and you change to a commodity you do want to use. And so while the quantity of value changes, I guess I would say like the quality of the value is different in that the use value is transformed into a different sort of use value. On the other hand, like the reason why capital is special is because there's no point in doing MCM if the number is the same at the beginning and the end. So in MCM, you are actually, beginning and ending with the same commodity, which is money, because remember, money is a commodity. But so that means the only difference can be in the quantity. You'll either have more of the same or less money. And the only reason you would do this cycle repeatedly is if you ended up with more money at the end of the MCM, because if you just made the same amount, then you wouldn't bother with this. And if you lost money in the operation, you definitely wouldn't bother with this.
3: Yeah, and uh, another thing to, to think about with that is like the importance of intent. Like, uh, I think David Harvey says in his lecture at one point that we can all become and unbecome petty capitalists at any point in time. And like when you look at um, like a commodity is any product made with the intent for solely of distribution and capital is money used with the intent of being purely used for growth of capital.
2: Right. Exactly. And that's where the, the the prime comes in. Like it's for the point of continuing to grow. Like not just one exchange. it's it's an exchange for the sake of continued exchanges,
1: so basically an exchange <coughs> whose entire purpose is to continue exchanging like forever, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly in a,
3: in a search for for more growth,
1: yeah
0: yeah. whereas by yeah. contrast, in the CMC circuit, you might end up with more value than you do at the beginning. Like you might end up with a commodity that just happens to be worth more on the market. But that's not really important to your exchange. Like you're doing it for the sake of having a different commodity. Uh, but for MCM, the value does have to change for there to be a point in the operation in the first place.
2: Right. Exactly.
3: Yeah, and without getting into to chapter six too much, another thing to remember is is uh, the perspective of when you're when you're sell- doing MCM. I mean, the way most workers do it, they have the commodity that is their labor. They sell that for money, and then they go buy the commodities that they need to survive. And that that's what separates the money form that we use from the capital form of MCM, where they start with an amount of money they've already had. They look to expand that amount of money. So they invest in a commodity, which is typically our labor time, and then they come out with a higher uh, exchange value than that which they started. So that's chapter four pretty well and thorough. And when we're moving on to chapter five, we're going into the the contradictions of capital and the things that that start to expose the antagonisms between even different forms of capital between industrial and, and um, what is it, uh, merchant's capital, and um, also the antagonisms between the classes that use the money form versus the classes that use the capital form.
0: Wait, I don't understand. So are you saying that? Different classes have a different relation to this MCM circuit.
3: Yeah, I, well, sort of. Like, just like how we can become and unbecome um, capitalists at any point in time. But the worker, the way I look at this, I, I could be totally wrong here, but the worker use, or sells his labor, which is his commodity. He then gets paid his uh, money value for whatever his labor time is worth to the capitalist. And then he goes out and buys more commodities. That's how I understand the money form, MCM. That is how most people use money. That's how most of us are, in fact, not capitalists in our everyday lives who sell our labor time. But then you look at the capitalist who uses their money for the purpose of expanding and getting more money. And the most commonly bought commodity for the capitalists, from my perspective, I could be totally off here, is our labor time, which they find more value in and expand their exchange value on the outcome, and that's how they end up with this M-prime.
2: So um, I have a uh, another favorite footnote, but I actually kind of want to read the whole thing. Um, that's at the very end of Chapter 5. And um, so he the sentence that leads up to the footnote says, the conversion of money into capital has to be explained on the basis of laws that regulate the exchange of commodities in such a way that the starting point is the exchange of equivalents, And the footnote says, from the foregoing investigation, the reader will see that this statement only means that the formation of capital must be possible even though the price and value of of a commodity must be the, even though the price and value of a commodity be the same, for its formation cannot be attributed to any deviation uh, of the one from the other. If prices actually differ from values, we must first of all reduce the former to the latter, In other words, treat the difference as accidental in order that the phenomena may be observed in their purity and our observations not interfered with by disturbing circumstances that have nothing to do with the process in question. We know, moreover, that this reduction is no more scientific process. The continual oscillation in prices, their rising and falling, compensate each other and reduce themselves to an average price, which is their hidden regulator. It forms the guiding star of the merchant or the manufacturer in every undertaking that requires time. He knows that when a long period of time is taken, commodities are sold neither over nor under, but at their average price. If, therefore, he thought about the matter at all, he would formulate the problem of the formation of capital as as follows. How can we account for the origin of capital on the supposition that prices are regulated by the average price, i.e. ultimately the, the value of the commodities? I say ultimately because the average prices do not directly coincide with the values of commodities as Adam Smith, Ricardo, and others believe. So I kind of felt like that like almost wrapped up <laughs> chapter five. And also he added a little spice about other economists.
3: Yeah, which he does love doing. He does that... <laughs> A lot.
2: Yes, it's, it's one fantastic. of my favorite things about Marx, actually.
3: <laughs> he, he never fails to be spicy.
0: You know, some people don't like last, that. Really? Some, yeah, dumb. some people are like, "Oh, he spends all of his time like shitting on other people who are not important." And it's like, "Well, they were important at the time. That's why he was shitting yeah. On them." Yeah.
3: Yeah. And they like, were doing they wrong the they work. They're mentioned. Yeah, and like. Sometimes Great to, to explain what's right, you gotta say like, "Look, this is really wrong. That is really wrong." And then you, you know, guide people in. So, I mean, like so- that
2: same last uh, paragraph, he he's a little extra spicy too because he says um, he talks about our friend Moneybags.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I do. Love these references.
2: Yeah, and he he actually kind of he says um, that uh, who as yet is only an embryo capitalist. <laughs> which I thought was like super cute
0: <laughs> yo I is mean, Mr. So Moneybags like... actually Angles <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe uh, this, this might know. be the jealous Marx um,
2: the embryo capitalist it's not I mean like it's
1: also <laughs> kind of like completely it's also kind of unfair to say that Marx was completely antagonistic to the likes of Adam Smith because I I guess like when I was like when I took like AP economics in high school, like we were taught either you're classical economist coming from Adam Smith or you're a Keynesian or a Marxist. And it's like, you can't. And so like there, it was very much like taught that like Marx and like Smith and Ricardo were like directly antagonistic and that they had nothing in common, that they hated each other, that their theories were just completely the opposite of each other but if you read, but if you actually, like, read um, Marx, it's not entirely true. I mean, like, Smith obviously, like, had some problems. But, like, to say that he's completely antagonistic isn't entirely accurate.
2: Um, I'm pretty sure he even actually, like, mentioned something that Adam Smith had correct in one of these yeah. chapters we've read so far. So, yeah, I think like he does that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he does. But for the most part, I mean, the dunks he gives are, um, (laughs) they're accurate.
3: Yeah. Yeah, because he is constructing on, like, the the bourgeois method of economy. So, like, he's taking them at face value and assuming what they're saying is true and bringing it out to its inevitable extent, which is where he gets into surplus value and how exploitation is built into it. So he says, like, yeah, they're right in this regard and that regard, but they fail to recognize or or – or maliciously deny that the, the exploitation is a part of it. So he's kind of taking them to their own utopian end on their own terms and like still coming to the realization that it's an absolutely fucked up exploitation. system.
0: Yeah. I think I, that's like definitely really good points. The important difference is like between who is a contemporary of Marx and whom he built upon, because a lot of Adam Smith's theories are not really like as a modern like Republican economists would represent them as like Adam Smith was not somebody who was a super libertarian saying we need the invisible hand. That'll take care of everything at all. That was like very much cherry picked out of his work.
3: Yeah. And I I do like how towards the end of this chapter, he comes in with, with some more spicy old quotes, like one from Ben Franklin, where he says, uh, quote, war is robbery. Commerce is generally cheating. And then, Another good one is from uh, Aristotle, where we're even talking about like merchants' capital in the in the beginning, like infant stages of of the use of money as capital, where he's talking about usurers, and he says the usurers most rightly hated because money itself is the source of his gain and is not used for the purpose for which it was invented. So, like he starts taking these old like. Aristotle is all about use value and he starts taking these old methods of economy and understanding markets and building upon them to to get to this modern capitalist structure.
0: So have we covered Absolutely. all of chapters four and five?
3: Yeah. Yeah, that was that was pretty much the did, end actually. of chap- my chapter five notes right there.
0: Right so on time, too.
2: Hell,
0: hell yeah. I just had a couple of notes on like how this might relate to kind of like the modern day arguments we see um the first thing is that like the way you're taught economics in school is very very hyper focused on equilibrium yeah and the movement (laughs) towards equilibrium um so i mean at least in my experience you spent like the entire time learning about how stuff shifts to equilibrium but marx is pushing that further he's saying like well okay you reach equilibrium but then what happens next like there's no real true equilibrium where the prices never change. So Marx is saying like, all right, well, let's average all that stuff out. Like, yeah, some things will beat the others. Some suppliers will all compete the other. You'll end up with the final price. But then what happens? Because the dialectic doesn't stop there. And the other comment I wanted to make is that like, basically like, what do you think about what separates the the capitalist from the worker? And I know that Marx is going to like really get into that later, but you know, at this point he's just saying, well, it's a matter of intent what you choose to spend it on. Like you could have a bunch of resources that you spend as money or you could spend it as capital, which really sounds good for the libertarian who's like, Oh, you hate being poor, why don't you just decide to become an investor and start a company, right?
3: Yeah, I think I there's like there's it. a lot of denial. Yeah, I, I do like like that point. I I think there's a lot of denial on the part of uh, of of any kind of person who looks at at economics from a libertarian perspective like it takes takes a lot of a lot of blinders you really got to be looking at the world through the smallest possible lens and like the whole purpose we understand of of trying to understand dialectical and historical materialism is not so much that it's a new lens to look at the world through but that it's supposed to be the removal of all other lenses like we're trying to be as as scientific about things as possible and I think like that's exactly. like that understanding is one of the most important things to really grasping the rest of it. Because without that basis, you're kind of you it's it becomes pure idealism. Like so my two cents on libertarians.
0: I have a lot of sense on libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> I was
1: I was I was one for seven years. I I was a libertarian for longer than I've been a leftist. Oh, like, yeah it's yeah not I mean like I have to you got
2: better right (laughs) yeah
1: I mean like obviously but like that's something like that I acknowledge and like I also kind of like use it to be like because like a lot of like leftists don't really understand like how libertarians think or like what their thought processes are and I'm just kind of like okay so like here's what's actually like going through
0: their heads right now (laughs)
2: <laughs> right
0: what's going through their heads it seems like hyper logic applied but with like a simple idealistic basis
3: a heavy dose of fear as well I think and yeah, uh,
2: right.
3: real apprehension about a dark economic future
1: um, in my experience it's especially like if you're white and cis and male which is like predominantly all the anarchists I know um there's kind of they come to a crossroads. It's like they come to a fork in a road. And one road is doing like more investigating, doing more like realizing that the whole system is you know designed to you know give everything to the people who own that, you know, to go down the the revolutionary path. And then the other path is pretend to acknowledge that the system is shit and um <laughs> but don't actually fundamentally question it. And it's like a lot of these, and like the left path is leftism and the right path is uh, libertarianism. And so like a lot of these people go down the right path. <laughs> that's kind of, I mean, like, that's kind of like what it is. Like they're like so close to being radical, but then again, you talk to them for like five seconds and they're so, so far. Um, it's really <laughs> like depressing. Libertarians,
0: libertarians seem kind of, Similar to left comms to me, and that they never want to actually own their history. Like, if you take a libertarian, take all their theories, and ask them, "All right, well, what about Pinochet's Chile?" Like, they're gonna make up some excuse about, like, "Oh, well, actually, it didn't work because X factor wasn't done right." And there's always gonna be something like, "Oh, it's because there were unions." Oh, it's because there was a government. Oh, like whatever. Um, Ani,
1: the more depressing, the more depressing reality is that um, a lot of them say that. Pinochet didn't do anything wrong. Oh my fucking god, are you fucking
0: kidding me? There are people who think that? Fuck! So,
1: ah. Okay, so um, I wasn't just a libertarian. Say. I wasn't just a libertarian. I was in the libertarian party when I was in high school, or at least with their youth affiliate. And uh-huh. that party, <laughs> um, the alt-right is basically taking it over, um, slowly but surely. The last convention was an absolute testament to that fact that a lot of the people in that party are like basically like reactionary right-wingers they're like generally if you talk to libertarians and you ask to ask them to place themselves on a political spectrum a lot of them are gonna answer with like i'm apolitical or i'm neither left nor right i'm like radical center but now it's like there's an increasing faction in the libertarian party that's like yeah we're right-wing we're proud of it too like that's a really big growing movement so like if you ask a libertarian yes. if you ask a libertarian if you go to just the party convention you ask him about pinochet there's a 40 to 60 chance that you're going to get a positive response which is what the fuck? really <laughs> depressing fucked yeah
0: so it's mask off now
1: <gasps> yeah we're it's basically, it's getting I mean,
0: there
1: i mean i, I have it. I have ten dollars with a friend that they're going to nominate John McAfee as their nominee in twenty twenty, and just go full off like we're just yeah we're like pirate capitalists who gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, I mean, I've well, I've heard that stated on on a number of occasions that like even if like the vague left and the not not really left, like God forbid a Joe Biden wins oh. and. Uh, like the the reaction to that the year after like will probably end up being like full blown fascism, yeah. um, e- probably eco fascism at best. Like with a weird centrist face going on. So, like it's gonna be not a
0: good look. Isn't Joe Biden a communist? <laughs> oh yeah, I've heard that. It was on Fox News. <laughs> Sarah Palin thinks he oh, is. Wow. It's really funny.
2: Imagine knowing like that little about communism.
3: Just words, like, the meaning of words does not matter at all,
0: like.
2: (laughs) No, apparently not.
0: That's my favorite new Twitter response is just love to not know what words mean. Yeah, like, it's so much easier that way, because
3: then I can just call people whatever I want.
2: (laughs) (laughs) When we first started this uh, discussion, book club discussion, we... Uh, weren't aware that we were going to make it into a podcast, but we're so happy that we're doing it. So now that we are caught up, we have a few sessions already planned out or already done that we are getting ready to release. We have a Twitter. You can find us at Proles of the Book Club and we will have our episode updates there so you can see which chapters we are on and follow along with us. If you want to join the book club, you can subscribe to the Patreon for our parent podcast, which is the Proles of the Roundtable. And we do this book club every Sunday. Um, We're going to be doing Capital for quite a while, but we do plan on doing other books afterwards. So go ahead and subscribe to them and and you can be part of this podcast. So this next week we'll be doing uh, chapter six. And yeah, that's it. See you next week.